those of you who uh, those of you who've been longtime members here know that for many many years um, I taught the auditorium class every Sunday, and uh, I never can seem to know when the classes end. I've never been able never been able to get my arms around it. And so this morning when I was told that or the remark was made that you know next week starts a new class, I'm like, but I'm not done yet. I'm never done. I never get through. And, you know, I have access to the same information you all have. I know when the weeks are, but I don't know. So we're going to have to cover a lot of ground today because next week starts another class, and um, I've still got – there's much to do before I can – much to do before I sleep. Um, we were talking last week about the man of lawlessness. Uh, we are in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And for those of you who uh, weren't here last week um, – you can go back and kind of look at that on uh, on YouTube, uh, look at those videos. But we're down in about uh, uh, verse 3 of that. Paul has reminded them not to be shaken by rumor uh, or by innuendo or by some spirit or by word or by a letter that they might hear. That, again, coming back to this recurrent theme, uh, that the Lord has already returned and, or, the, you know, he will return soon. And he has words to say about that in the third chapter about, uh, you know, getting back to work, not being lazy. Uh, man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, that sort of thing. But now we come to verse 3 where he begins to talk about something that is going on at the present. And we had two other, uh, we had two other verses that we put along with that. So uh, around verse, uh, I'll say verse 3. Uh, if you're making notes in the margins of your Bible or if you're taking notes, with regard to, to verse 3, put down Acts 20, verses 28 to 31, and also put in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll tie those or, or, or weave those into our discussion today uh, concerning this uh, situation that is uh, that has already begun, that is arising, and that will uh, that will go down through the years until the Lord returns. And so he says in verse three, which is where we'll take up today, um, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. That day is what? That day is the day of the Lord, the return of Christ for the second time. That day will not come. It has not already come. It's not here. That day will come only after something occurs. He says, for that day will not occur unless the falling away comes first. All right? Now, does your Bible have anything other than the word falling away? Does it have another term? I'm sorry? Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting phraseology. I'm, I'm Rebellion, okay. If you look at the Greek word for falling away. Oh, you read the wrong, okay. Rebellion <laughs> makes more sense than, that makes more sense. So the word falling away, the term falling away, if you look at the Greek for that, it is the word apostasia. Okay. In fact, some versions will say that that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, this man of sin opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 
Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Paul has already had this conversation with these folks at Thessalonica once already. He's already brought this to their attention. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. So we know who's behind this. We know who's behind this man of sin. We know who's behind the working of lawlessness. It is Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all, unrighteousness, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they, will, that they all may be condemned, and who did not believe the truth, but, the pleasure, that, but they pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, so... The time of the writing of this book is 51 A.D. This is the first, these are the first books that Paul wrote of all of his, uh, his, of his writings. These are the first two, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So this is about 51 A.D. In 70 A.D., Jerusalem falls, and all of the Jews are, uh, for the most part, killed. Those who are Christians fled away. Uh, you can read the writings of Josephus about that, but he's very vivid in his writings about that. So Paul is now laying a foundation for who he is referring to as the man of sin. And so this man of sin has identifying characteristics, all right? So if we look at this man of sin, what are, what are his identifying characteristics? So now that we've read these verses, verses 1 through 12, there are telltale Signs, or there are telltale qualities of this, what we'll call man of sin, this diabolical force that will allow us to hopefully identify who this is. All right? The man of sin, verse 3, the man of sin is the ultimate result of the falling away. There is a falling away, there is an apostasy. Okay, an apostasy is a movement away from the truth. So we have the Bible. These people had the, had the original letters that would be read to them in their services. They did not have the Bible in its complete form that we did, but they had enough to know all the things that pertain to life and godliness. They knew what the truth was. But there is an apostasy that is already at work. There's a falling away that's already at work. And it is caused by, or it is the, one of the causal factors of this, is the man of sin. That's the ultimate result. The falling away, again, translates in the Greek to the word apostasia. So we, we use that word apostasy today. Uh, that's the anglicized version uh, or the, a form of that word. So this word apostasy is used as a, uh, defined as a defection from the religion that is ordained by God. Now it's used in, a na- it's used in its noun form over in Acts 21. It's employed as a departure from the Mosaic system. In this present format, however, when it's used here by Paul, it is defined as a falling away from Christianity. It is a falling away from God's word. It is a falling away by those who are doing anything that is not written in this book, going beyond the scriptures, 
or doing what is not in the not le- less than the scriptures, either doing more or less. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah, that is it. That is it. Yeah, yeah. That is a that is a good term. So, second thing we know about this is the man of sin has yet to be revealed. Okay, that's in verse three also. This sinister force from a first century vantage point, from a first century look, was yet to be revealed. We do not know who that man of sin is. That suggests to us that the movement in its most incipient form has not grown fully mature yet, but it's beginning to grow. And we, we see this, we see this after, uh, so Paul is writing this in 51 A.D. Paul dies in 67 A.D. under the reign of Nero Caesar. The last apostle, John, dies, we think, on the, uh, either on the Isle of Patmos, but he dies in exile in about 100 A.D. Okay, Revelation is written in about 96 A.D. That's the last book to be written. Paul, uh, John, the last apostle, the one whom Christ loved, is the last apostle to die, and he dies in about 100 A.D. Okay? So from there, from 100 A.D., there are no more apostles that are living. And what we see is we see this apostasy grow ever faster after that. It's already started. Some of the churches are already moving in this direction. Paul says to the the church at Thessalonica, he says they're already moving in that direction, but they're moving slowly. It's not evolved. It's not evolved into a full. It's at a. If you think about it, crawl, walk, run. It's at a crawl right now. After all the apostles are gone, it's going to it's going to be a full walk, and then it's going to turn into a, a run. Okay, so. This persecuting power designated the man of sin uh, is referred to in multiple terms. You also see the term there, the son of perdition. Um, the lawless one is the opponent of God. And I was reminded in reading some of the works this week by some other scholars of uh, the little horn in Daniel's vision in Daniel 7.25. But what we know is that the man of sin opposes God. He exalts himself. And he sits in the temple of God. Now, the temple has not been used at this point in time in, 50, in, in 51 A.D. The temple is, has fallen into disuse at this point in time. It's not even, not even. So what is he talking about when he says that he sits in, in the temple of God? What is he sitting in? What's the, what would be the phrase that we would use as the temple of God? It would be the church. It would be the church. The church has been established. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. But there's an apostasy that is starting, and this apostasy is growing. And so when, when, when we say this person sits in the temple of God, it's not a reference to the Jewish house of worship, because the word that Paul uses there is the word naos, N-A-O-S. And he uses it eight times, and it's never used to, it's never used to describe the Jewish temple. It's always used to describe the church. So the implication here of Paul's warning is that this Unholy being is, is viewed as some type of church character. Someone in the church is beginning in its very earliest form some type of apostasy from, from, the, from the true religion that they had taught. Right. He could be described as Antichrist, but there, like you said, there, there are terms for Antichrist that are used of anyone who, and we, we had this discussion a couple of weeks ago. So it is probably best to, to determine that this, is the, this man of sin 
is an antichrist, yes, because he's going against the, the religion of Christ that Christ established, what the church established, what, the, what Paul and the other writers of the New Testament are, are writing about. And so if he's going against that, he is antichrist. So you are correct in one sense. Um, but, you know, he, he, is, he is referred to here by Paul as something other than antichrist. He is referred to as the man of, the man of sin or the man of perdition. So what does he do? He represents himself as God. Whoever this man is, this man of sin, this man of perdition, he represents himself as God by claiming to belong only to deity. He receives adoration reserved exclusively for God. He usurps the prerogatives which only God can accomplish. And he talks about sin deceiving, lying miracles and other things. He deceives those who love not the truth by virtue of the lying wonders he affects in verses 9 and 10. And so one scholar has written that these pretended miracles are not in a category of Christ's miracles. And Linsky even goes so far as to point out, so many are ready to attribute real miracles to Satan and to his agents, but the scriptures never do. So in identifying this man of sin, one must thus look for a post-apostolic movement that claims its authenticity by these quote-unquote miracles that they're doing. Okay? So, what else do we know? We know that the man of sin is already at work in Paul's day, the early stages of this ecclesiastical apostasy are already at work in, in the early church. That's in verse 7. And so the next thing that we see here is that they are restrained during Paul's day. Well, let's look at that a little bit further because they're restrained during Paul's day, but the restraining force is going to be removed. And that's what he says. So there is some influence that's restraining this budding man of sin. There's some sort of force or some sort of abstract force as evidenced by the verb usage, the restraining thing. It, it strongly associates with a movement or an individual within a movement likely signifying that there are individuals that are involved in this that are working within the church to form this apostasy. So the man of sin will later be revealed, Paul says. But there is a restraining force that's in place right now. And, excuse me, an entity that is contemporary with Paul. A restraining force is, is, is contemporary with Paul, so it's something that everyone knows about already. But this restraining force will eventually be taken out of the way, and it will more correctly be gone. And so the man, in, in, the man of sin will reveal himself in verses 6 and 7. And so the man of sin then, when he is unrestrained, when this restraining force is removed, this man of sin will then continue until the day of judgment, until Christ comes again, at which time Christ will destroy him, uh, he says, with the breath of his mouth, consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. All right, so we have all the pieces to the puzzle. We have all the pieces to the puzzle. Paul in Acts 20, 1 Timothy 4, and here in 2 Thessalonians has given us all the pieces to the puzzle. So let's spend the next few minutes looking at, because I'm going to stop at about 15 after to get through the end of the, to the, end of the chapter, because I'm bound and determined to get through this book. So look, what are our options? If, we have, if we, have, we have a number of theories regarding this man of sin, 
that we can look at. So we've set forth all the elements. We've looked at all the pieces of the puzzle. Let's put the puzzle together now and see what history tells us this, what this is that Paul is talking about. All right, the first one that comes to mind is pagan mythology. Well, first of all, pagan mythology has been around a long time. It was around in the Old Testament. And Paul says very specifically here that this is something that is is just now growing. And so pagan mythology could not be considered. It's totally inconsistent with what the Bible claims, and it does not fit, it does not fit the model. Well, some have argued that it's Satan himself. Now, while Satan is behind this, because he said he is, uh, up here in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Well, if it's according to the working of Satan, it's not Satan. It's not Satan. It's someone who's coming that's doing works by Satan's, by Satan's power or authority, which obviously dis- distinguishes this person from Satan himself personally. So that, that's, not, that's not an option. Right, there, yeah, there, yeah, there are some, yeah, there are some, there are some corollaries to this in Revelation. And if we got off into, if we, we went down that rabbit hole, we'd be here a week. Right, right, right. So, the next option, the next option is there is some principle of evil personified in a person that alleges to have this power. So, if we look at things like uh, uh, historical opponents of truth, Fascism, communism, uh, uh, you know, in 600 A.D. there's going to be the advent of, of Islam through the, the children of uh, Ishmael. But none of these fit, none of these, none of these fit a very personal reference. There's no one person that's involved with this. The man of sin is, is, is pointing to a definite, specific influence rather than a generic. Notice it's the man of sin. It's not a man of sin. It's the man. Just like, just like it's the faith. It's one faith. The man of sin. So it, it's, a, it's a specific influence, not a generic one. So the next one we can consider is something that was prevalent in, this, in Paul's time. That would be Judaism. Well, Judaism um, doesn't fit the mold because um, the man, this man of sin would then have to have been destroyed in, in 70 AD when, uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed. So the concept of this, and and some of the radical preterists will use this argument, Uh, the concept is totally false. Judaism was not a part of this falling away or the falling away. Notice it's the falling away. It's a very specific falling away. It's not a falling away. It's the falling away. And so, moreover, Paul's prophecy of the second coming, using the word parousia in verse 8, was not fulfilled until A.D. 70. And so it doesn't really, doesn't, really, doesn't really fit the pattern. So then we fall back on what's going on in this time of 51 A.D. And we, we can turn our attention to a Roman ruler, any, any particular Roman ruler, Nero, Domitian, um, uh, Tiberius, any of the Roman rulers. Um, that's a popular concept uh, among people. Perhaps it was Nero because so many of these, so many of these persecutions happened under Nero. Well, Nero never, fought, Nero never fell away from the faith. This is internal, remember? And Nero, as far as we know, was never a Christian. He killed plenty of Christians, but he was never, he was never a Christian. And so he doesn't fit the mold because um, he's not, he, doesn't fit the, uh, he, he doesn't fit the mold of one who would fall away from the faith. And additionally, 
this is something that will be going on until Christ returns. And we've long since lost Roman, Roman emperors and Caesars. They're, they're no more. So they can't fit this pattern. Now, the premillennialists will tell you that the man of sin is, uh, is an individual embodying anti-God power who is still to arise before the future uh, day of the Lord. And if any of you have ever read Hal Lindsey, um, this is what he calls the future Fuhrer. And so he spends an entire chapter in his book uh, attempting to prove that this future Fuhrer is going to make some kind of a, uh, an entrance. Uh, but Paul stated that the mystery of iniquity, characteristic of the man of sin, is already at work. So Hal Lindsey's argument about this rise of the future Fuhrer doesn't hold water because Paul says that this, this is already at work. It's already at work in their day in 51 A.D. So that eliminates any person who arises during a modern era as being the man of sin. So what does that leave us? The best evidence seems to indicate that the man of sin represents the papal dynasty of the apostate church at Rome. And so what we see here, let's look at the ten points identified earlier that we've, that we've looked at with this. The apostasy itself. The Roman Catholic Church did not arise during any given history, during any given period of history. Rather, if you go back through history and look, it was a gradual, it was a gradual apostasy. John died in 100 A.D. By 140 A.D., several of the bishops of Rome, or several of the bishops, including the bishop of Rome, the bishop of uh, Ephesus, the bishop of uh, Antioch, the bishop of Jerusalem, the bishop of uh, Constantinople, all of these had already encouraged the use of sprinkling as a form of baptism moving away from immersion as a form of baptism. So the apostasy was gradual in its beginning. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that the Spirit speaks expressly that in latter times some shall fall away from the truth. He details the traits of this movement if you go over to 1 Timothy 4 and 1. Forbidding to marry, abstaining from meats. These are all corruptions of the divine economy. Changes in the plan of redemption. Sprinkling. Infant baptism, which both arose are about 140 A.D. in their incipient beginnings. Alteration of the worship service, the mass, the veneration of Mary. These are progressive implementations by the Romans, or by the Roman Catholic Church. Fundamentally, Catholicism has evolved as a defection from the original faith. The history has been graphically detailed in a book called The History of Apostasies. And I have that reference for you if you'd like to read it. So, in 51 AD, it was a budding phenomenon in the apostolic age. Consequently, over time, it was not fully revealed until many centuries later. The Roman movement has had through its long history a disposition of lawlessness. Um, one that I wrote, uh, one that I copied down was, The Pope doeth whatever he, list, what, whatever he wills, even things that are unlawful, and he is more than God. And this, is a, uh, this was a Catholic writer. Uh, tradition in the Catholic Church is the voice of the church and is superior to Scripture. Tradition, the voice of the church, is superior to Scripture. So if you talk to someone who is of that faith... When they can't answer your question with a thus saith the Lord or a Bible answer, they will turn to their traditions. And that's how they will give you an answer. 
The papacy opposes God. Surely anyone who claims to be more than God, as the papacy does, cannot be described otherwise than an enemy to the Almighty. The papal rulers, as it were, they sit in the temple of God. They sit in the church in in an ecclesiastical force. They claim to be Christ on earth. Christ is the head of the church in heaven, the papacy will say. Christ is the head of the church in heaven. The papacy is the head of of the church on earth. Yet Jesus affirmed that he possessed all the authority. And when Jesus has all the authority, I'm not sure that leaves much authority for anyone else. He has all authority, Matthew 28, 18. Paul stated in Colossians 1, 18 that, Paul, that Christ is the singular head of the church. Well, what about usurping the throne of God? They make claims that belong to only deity. Our God, the Pope, another God upon the earth, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is straight from, this is straight from Catholic literature. Accepting adoration not proper for a man. They bow before the Pope. They kiss his feet. They kiss his ring. Contrast what happened when Peter visited Cornelius. What did Cornelius do when Peter came to him? He bowed down. And what did Paul say? Get up. I'm just a man. And even John, when he fell at the feet of the angel, said, stand up. I am but a man. They presume to act for God in matters pertaining to faith. Um, according to Catholic doctrine, absolution is a judicial act whereby a priest remits the sins of a penitent who has con- contrition and has made confession and promises satisfaction. The papal system arrogantly attempts to lawlessly act for God. Their claims of miracles, the whole history of Catholicism is checkered with the claims of miracles. A Catholic apologist writes, that God has allowed his saints to work miracles to prove their divine commission to speak in his name and to give the world a clear proof of their imminent sanctity. The church always requires four or in some cases six miracles before they will proceed to beatify or canonize a saint. The seeds of the, of the popery, the seeds of the Catholic church were sown in apostolic times. That's what Paul is clearly saying. He says the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Idolatry had invaded the church in 1 Corinthians 10.14 and in Colossians 2.18 Paul talks about uh, even the worship of angels. Handling the word of God deceitfully, 2 Corinthians 4.2 had already begun. Strife and division were affecting the church as early as 1 Corinthians 3 verse 3. Excuse me. Gospel truth was sacrificed for the sake of money. 1 Timothy 6.5 Titus 1 and 11, and things like the purchase of uh, indulgences, distinctions made regarding meats and human traditions were already creeping into the church in Colossians 2, verse 23. Certain men were beginning to exert preeminence and to flex their ecclesiastical muscle in in 3 John and verses 9 and 10. And out of these attitudes and actions, the papacy was finally born in about 600 or about 590 A.D. So what was the initial restraining? He talks about this this being restrained. And now, verse 6, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. What was restraining? The restraining was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a force that kept this apostasy in check. But it's a matter of history that when Imperial Rome fell in 476 A.D., great power 
was shifted from the hands of the Romans into the hands of the church. Great power. If the restraining force was the Roman Empire and that force was removed in the 5th century AD, then Lindsay's man of sin has not yet become manifest if this dispensational scheme of things were true. So what flourished after the fall of the Roman Empire? After Rome fell, the power of the church accelerated its power. Papal authority was greatly increased. Crowns were removed and bestowed at the behest of papal rulers. And I have a couple of examples here, and I'll just give, I'll just give you a, a couple of these. Um, Henry IV uh, sought to depose Pope Gregory VI in the 11th century. He was excommunicated by the by the Pope. He was absolved of all of his. He absolved all of the Pope absolved all of his subjects from allegiance, and Henry was powerless under the papal ban. Not until 1077, when the emperor was called to northern Italy to beg the Pope's forgiveness, he was forced to stand in the snow barefoot for three days before the Pope would see him. In Germany, Emperor Frederick was told to lay on the ground and allow Pope Alexander to stand on his neck. As the king knelt, uh, or as, as Pope Celestine III crowned Henry, the, Henry VI of England, as he knelt in front of him, the king had the pl crown placed on his head. The pope reached forward with his foot and kicked the crown from the monarch's brow. At another time, Pope Alexander rode horseback down the street. This is the pope riding horseback down the street, walking alongside on either side of the horse, and leading the animal by its bridle were Louis, the king of France, and Henry, the king of England. The papacy assumed great power once the restraining force of the Roman Empire was released. So will this continue? It says here that it will continue until the Lord returns and he will consume it with the breath of his mouth and destroy the brightness of his coming. The apostate church and evolution from truth to error clearly has its genesis in the first century. It's already, it's already starting. And yet this movement continues to this day and according to Paul's prophecy will abide in one form or another until Christ returns. This apostasy is the only system which fits the demands of these passages and is both ancient and modern, something that cannot be said of Caesar, of the Jewish zealots, the modern Antichrist, or anything, anything else that we've discussed. It is, of course, in vogue these days to ridicule this view uh, by those who are, are not students of, of God's word. And so the Roman church is standing today, and it will continue to stand uh, until the Lord um, returns, and so that is that is a, a, the best description or the best rendition that I can give you for who the man of sin is, and it all seems to uh, it all seems to play um, just as Paul said it would, uh, according to uh, the book of Acts in uh, chapter 20, and also in First uh, Timothy 4. Questions or comments at this point? I want to use the last 15 minutes to finish up the book. Um, so, questions or comments? Anything? Anything at all? Any questions? You can go back and you can look. You can go home this afternoon and get on the Google, and you can search uh, uh, pope of the, the pope of any city, the pope of any city over there. Um, who, was the, who was the pope of, uh, of uh, let's see, uh, who was uh, Jerusalem? Who was the first pope of Jerusalem? It was James, supposedly. James, the brother of Jesus, was supposedly the first pope. And this was long before, this was long before, this is, we're in Acts. 
where he's, where he's the first, where he's the first bishop. He's the bishop of Jerusalem. Um, the bishop of Rome was who? Who was the first bishop of Rome? Peter, according to the Catholics. Peter was the first bishop of Rome. Well, this, this, doesn't, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't fit that narrative because of the way we, what we know about Peter. But what's happened is they've taken these and gone back. And remember we talked last week about the fact that everybody, every, every city where the church was had a bishop because they all appointed elders. Who was sent to Crete to appoint elders? Who was sent to Crete to appoint elders all over the island? There's a book named after him. Huh? Titus. Titus was the bishop of Crete, according to people who will assign him that. He's never called the bishop of Crete. He's told by Paul to go to Crete and appoint elders to every congregation. But you can see if you appoint elders to every congregation, and then you have one elder or a bishop that is over all of those churches, then you have these, then you have these amalgamations of people that are going together. And soon the forces get together that you have four very powerful bishops. Bishop of Rome... Bishop of Jerusalem, Bishop of Antioch, and one other which just escapes my mind right now, and I can't even think. Uh, are you familiar with Are you familiar with the anti-Nicene writers, the Church Fathers? Okay, you, y'all need to y'all need to go on Amazon and buy these. They're they're good books to read. They're not inspired books. They're not inspired books, but they give a very good. <coughs> glimpse into first century Christianity along with a book called the Didache. I have all those on my, I have them all on my iPad. So, I mean, you can get them, you can get them in any format and you can read them. These guys, these early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Eusebius, Irenaeus, who was the bishop of, uh, what was he the bishop of? Oh, I can't think of, was it Sardis? I mean, he might not, have, he might have been the bishop of Sardis, but but these guys, these guys write, and they write and incorporate parts of the Bible into everything that they say. In fact, scholars say that if, you, if the Bible was taken away, you could take the early church fathers' writings, and you could, you could piece together the Bible, because they quote Scripture almost exclusively throughout these things. Now, that's not to say that some of them in later years were part of this apostasy. Eusebius, especially, and Arrhenius were some of the ones that were advocating for infant baptism uh, very early, very early on. And so th- they are not inspired writers, but they make for wonderful reading. It's, it's great reading, but you have to. This, these are not books that someone who's new in the faith you don't want them. We don't. You don't want to read those because they, they can easily they can easily get confused. Okay. If you're a good Bible student, if you're a good Bible scholar, these make good non-inspired editions that you can read to talk about, look at church history, especially execution of the martyrs, uh, all the martyrs for Christ that, that, uh, that are talked about there. So these are good things, but that's, that's, a, that's, a, whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. Okay, so let's finish up. We've got, we got about a few minutes here. We are obligated to thank God, verse 13 of chapter 2. We're obligated to thank God always for you, brethren, dear to the Lord, because God has chosen you as first fruits from salvation and consecration by the Spirit. And in the belief of the truth, he called you to this through the gospel. So he said all this about the apostasy. He said this about this great falling away. But he said, through the gospel, you've been called. So it's the gospel that should stand and all these other things are to be left beside the road because that's, that's adding to or taking away from the scriptures. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold on to the traditions which you were taught. 
This all is in reference to this. Stand fast in the traditions that you were taught. The worship service. How is the worship to be conducted? How are we to live our lives? How are we to handle our, our, our tongues? How are we to do all of these things? Stand fast in the traditions which you were taught, whether through speech or through our letters. And so the letters stand as those guideposts for the Christian, the letters that we have that comprise the New Testament, they stand as the guideposts for us in how we live our lives. Through speech, things that we were taught, and through, his, through the letters that we read. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave eternal encouragement and good hope through grace encourage your hearts and establish, establish you in every good work and word. Chapter 3. Finally, brethren, last chapter, putting the icing on the, this is the icing on the cake. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the Lord's message may be run and be honored even as it is with you. Again, high praise to the church at Thessalonica, where in 240 A.D. there's an edict of Thessalonica. And if you want to read about that, go home and search Edict of Thessalonica. And you can read about that. It's, a, it's another one of these early apostasies. So he's writing this in 51 A.D., 100 years from now, 100 years from when Paul writes this, 150, maybe, 100, maybe 150 years, 175 years from this, there's going to be an Edict of Thessalonica that's put out by the Bishop of Thessalonica. And if you want to know who that is, go home and look up Bishop, first Bishop of Thessalonica, and it'll tell you, it'll tell you who that was. So, that we may be delivered. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the Lord's message may run and be honored even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. The faith, notice he says the faith. The faith is not in all men. And that may that may be that may be that may not be your version, but this is this is the version that I'm reading from. The faith is not in all men, but the Lord is dependable. He will establish and guard you from the evil one. Moreover, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do what we command. Traditions of things that they were taught, traditions of speech, and traditions through the letters. You will do. We have confidence that you are doing what we have commanded. May the Lord guide your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now, verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother living idly. And not after the, not after the tradition that you received from us. So here's that fork in the road, and in the fork in the road, the devil's always standing there at the fork to help you make the wrong decision. So there are those who are living idly. They're not living after the tradition that they received from us. What was the tradition that Paul has talked about that he received from them? What would be, as opposed to living idly, what did he do? They're, they, they're supposed to work. What was his occupation? He was a tent maker. And so he says that. He follows it up. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, we were not idle among you. Neither did we eat anyone's bread for free. In labor and wearisome toil, we worked night and day so as not to be a burden to any one of you. It is not that we do, it is not that we do not have the right, but we made ourselves an example to you that you should imitate us. So we're not to imitate the idle. We're not to imitate the lazy. We're to imitate those who work hard 
You work for your food. You work for, your, you work for what you get. If anyone does not wish to work, verse 10, let him not, let him not, neither let him eat. We hear that some among you are idle, working at nothing, and they're busybodies. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. If you're working with your hands, you don't have time to be a busybody. If you're idle, you have a lot of time to be a busybody. And it's not what Paul says he wants them to be. We hear that some among you are idle, working at nothing, and are busybodies. Now we command you in the Lord Jesus, and we exhort such people that they should eat their own bread, working quietly. And you, brothers, do not grow weary in, well, in, in doing good. If anyone does not obey our message through this letter, take note of him and do not associate with him, that he may be ashamed. However, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. May the Lord of peace himself give you the peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. The greeting of Paul with my hand, which is a sign in every letter, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. All right, so we made it with precious time to spare. Comments and questions about either of, either of the books or anything that we've discussed at all um, in the class overall? Impressions? Anything that Paul said in the writings to the church at Thessalonica? Anything at all? All right. Um, again, I, I can recommend to you that you read um, the uh, Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. Um, if, you have a, if you can get a copy of that, you can get that on a Kindle. I believe that's how I have mine. I have it on a Kindle. And that is just the, uh, there's also several good books on worship in the first century, uh, written by some of the church fathers, some of the quote-unquote church fathers. Um, I even brought an article about church fathers. Benefits and abuses. Eh, we'll read this for next time. Um, let's see. Th- this generally, these church fathers wrote from about 30 A.D. to about 100 A.D. So they wrote within that latter period when Paul was writing most of his uh, were writing most of his works. Um, they energetically promoted and defended Christianity as they understood it. Um, There is a series of documents, and we talked about that, that began at the end of the apostolic age and continued into the council continued unto the Council of Nice in 325 A.D. And these are called these letters are called the Anti-Nicene, so they're against the Nicene Council, the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Um, They're essays written by a dozen writers, like Clement of Rome, who was the Bishop of Rome. Uh, Clement of Rome, uh, and Clement is mentioned. We think he's we think he's mentioned by Paul in Philippians 4:3. We think this is the Clement that's working, that's working with Paul. It's, it's interesting that Paul and Clement are in Rome at about the same time um, doing their work. And so um, while Clement may, may have been a very effective, been a very effective elder, his name has been linked to the Roman Catholic group of, of bishops down through time in error because the Roman Catholic Church did not start until the fall of Rome. So, you know, they're just trying to tie this back. And what you'll see is Catholicism will try to tie itself back to the first century through all of these people. What do they say about Peter? He's the first pope. Well, no, he wasn't. You know, they, they, totally, they totally take that out of context. And they make a pretext when Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. That's not what he was talking about at all. If you look at it grammatically, what's he building his church on? The confession that Peter made. 
Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Was that second bell? All right. I'll leave it there. Thank you all.